If you're joining us today, or if you're kind of coming back into this series, let me give us a little bit of a recap on what we're doing, what we're talking about. We're in this series on the book of Colossians. It's called Manifesto. This is week six, and we've been talking about how Paul just beautifully portrays Christ, right? He just, he talks about how Christ was before all, how Christ is in all, how he works through all. So we can basically say Christ is all. It is magnificent. It is awe-inspiring. It is incredible language. And Paul wrote this letter from prison. So this always blows my mind. I'm thinking, how does he have such a beautiful perspective when he's in jail? How does he write such enriching and just powerful words when he's in prison? But he does it. And he, he draws all of our attention to the magnificence of God, of Jesus. He's actually writing this letter around the year AD 62, something around then. And he's writing to talk to the people there about a specific issue. They're dealing with some troubling things. They're dealing with what's called a Christological heresy, right? People were being taught something other than Christ. If you remember, Colossians, this church was actually fairly young. And, you know, when you think about young people, you always think of, like, energy and optimism, right? So they had a, they had a lot of energy. They were doing good things. But they were being misled. They were receiving false teachings. And these things were infiltrating the church. So Paul writes to set things straight. You see, we could say that the church had lost its focus. Right? We could say that the church had become distracted. That they were preoccupied with other things, other teachings. Some of it, to their credit, was religious, right? They were, they were hearing these things, receiving these teachings, were somewhat right, but not quite right. Like the teachings were a little bit off. They were not aligned with. They were not focused on what mattered most. So the believers there were being misled. These sneaky and deceptive teachings were misleading. They had an air of truth, but they were slightly off. Now, have any of you ever recognized a mistruth? Or have you ever been misled I've been on the, the giving and the receiving end of some misleading. And before you judge me, let me just tell you, tell you about this, all right? When I, my wife and I were dating, we loved to prank each other, we scare each other. I grew up, I was always kind of a trickster, right? I like making jokes and scaring people. So my wife and I, we, through our dating years, even still a little bit today, not as much, but we would scare each other all the time. And this one time, she got me so good. She jumped out of a trunk and just about scared the life out of me. Have you ever seen those videos where like a person gets scared and then the, the person just punches? That's not what happened. But it could have because the, you know, like the fight or the flight kicked in and I just bolted. I was like, I'm out of here. I was so scared. I ended up halfway down the street and I was terrified. So now I had to pay back that scare, right? I was like, okay, she's got it. She's got it coming to her. So this is like, um, I was finishing school, my, my undergrad at Walla Walla, and my wife was down here, yeah. She was down here studying dental hygiene at Loma Linda. So we were engaged to be married. We're doing long distance. You know, it was hard. We were lonesome for each other. And I actually, I found this cheap ticket. So I booked the flight. 
without telling her. And I was like, I'm going to surprise her. And then I thought, oh, I'm not only going to surprise her, I'm going to get her back, right? It was just payback time, right? So I, I create this elaborate scheme with my buddy. He was going to pick her up, and then he would have her, like, a bunch of stuff in his front seat, so it would force her into the back seat, right? Now, his car had the back seat, like, one seat could flop down, so half, like, three-quarters of my body was hiding in the trunk, and, like, my head and torso was, like, in the back seat, covered up, right? So, so Dana was going to get into the back of the car, and I was going to just scare her so good. Here's what happened. I had made the mistake of doing a little, like, BO check, right? I was like, I, I've been traveling all day. I was studying, whatever. I was like, I better just check myself before I see my soon-to-be bride, right? So I took a whiff, and I was like, whoa, bro, you better put some deodorant on, right? So I, I kind of just, like, freshened up, right? I got a little cologne spray, right? I'm like, okay, now I'm ready. So I get into the trunk. I get into position. She gets into the car and instantly knows that something is off. She's like, wait, what's going on here? And before we even like get off the curb, she's like, I know Mike is in here. Let me just see him now. I was like, oh man. <laughs> so I was trying to mislead her. She wasn't having it. She got me good one time. And I think if she were one of these believers in the Colossian church, she would have been like, no, 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 no. Something's up here. Something's awry. And I would have been like, Oh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> Something. <laughs> so some people are easily misled. Others are not. And Paul is writing to address these mistruths, right? He's writing against these false teachings. He begins this letter with this beautifully high Christology, right? He doesn't really come out swinging, hard-hitting. He focuses on the preeminence and the all-sufficiency of Christ, it's beautiful. He presents Christ as the center of the universe, the one who holds it all together, the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer, the visible image of the invisible God. He says, in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form. It is beautiful language focused on the magnificence of Jesus and Paul uses this language to set the stage for the issues that he needs to address. So they were receiving these false teachings, and they came in these two specific areas. The first was Judaic legalism, and the second was Gnostic mystery, or secrets, right? Now, we've been hearing a bit about these things each week. I'll unpack it a little bit more. But the Colossians were being misled into thinking that rigid ceremonialism and these pagan or Gnostic mysteries had a part in their experience of God. Now, we've got actually a pretty significant chunk of Scripture, so we've got to jump right in. We're going to finish chapter 2, and we're going to roll into chapter 3. And now, I think Pastor Sam talked about the reason for that, how the original writing didn't have chapter, didn't have verse. So really, we're finishing the thought here, and it finishes in the beginning of chapter 3. So let's dive in. We're going to start in Colossians 2, verse 16. Paul says, so don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Now hold the phone. Is Paul telling us here that we don't have to be vegetarian Sabbatarians? 
Is he saying that it doesn't matter what we eat, what we drink, what day we worship on? Is he saying we could eat unclean meats? Could we, could we do that? Is that what he's saying? What is he, what is he talking about here? First of all, I think these are fairly strong words, right? It stirs us up a little bit when we hear these things. So let us remember that Paul is speaking to a specific group of people at a specific time, and he's addressing a very specific issue. So there were these teachers in the church, they were saying that the believers needed to adhere to the law in more rigid ways, which would suggest that the law had some kind of power right? They're saying, if you eat this and you do that, if you keep this and you keep that, then you'll be good. You'll be okay. You'll be saved. But Paul, he pushes back. He says, no, no, no. It's not about what you eat or what you don't eat. It's not about what day you do or you don't keep. It's really about one thing, Jesus. Now, I've got to be honest with you here. I struggled this week thinking about processing how I'm going to handle this text, right? Because even for me, it stirred up my heart a little bit. I wondered, what, what have I heard? What have I learned? What have I been taught about this text? I feel like sometimes um, pastors choose to skip over this text, or maybe they kind of preach their way around it, or, or they read their own thoughts into it, right? They make it say what they want it to say. So this week... I'm sitting there, Pastor Tim comes into my office, we start talking about this text, and he's like, man, that's a hard text. He's like, I probably should have preached that one. I was like, yeah, you should have. Like, why are you giving me all the hard texts, right? So he sits with me, and we talk about these things, and what I realize is that I don't want to do those other things. I don't want to skip this. I don't want to gloss over this. I don't want to work around it or read into it. I want this scripture to speak for itself. Right? I want this to tell us what it meant and what it has to say. So let's look at this. We're going to look back in history and see what is Paul talking about here. He's referring to this system that had been established during the Exodus. So long ago, he's talking here, when he talks about food and drink, he's no doubt referring to these ceremonial offerings that the Israelites had to present that were in compliance with the sacrificial system. When he talks about these holy days, these new moon festivals, these Sabbaths, these appointed things, these were established back then at that time period as well. So Leviticus 23 is where we're going to go. And you may already, when you hear that, start falling asleep. Just bear with me, all right? We're going to dig deep into a little bit of Leviticus. We're going to start in chapter 23 because I want us to see what the meaning here is and how, how it makes sense with this context. So Leviticus 23 verse 2. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work. Wherever you live, it is a Sabbath to the Lord. So here we see him outlining the seventh day, this weekly Sabbath, which I believe Paul strongly believed in and valued. I do not think Paul is saying here in Colossians that the seventh day Sabbath is insignificant. I believe this because Paul was a Jew. He kept a Sabbath. 
right? A lot of times when he's doing these teachings, he's teaching on the Sabbath. So I don't think he's negating the Sabbath in any way. And as we continue in Leviticus, we'll see here, there are these additional Sabbaths that are mentioned. So let's go to verse 4. It says, these are the appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies. You are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's festival of unleavened bread begins. So he's outlining, he's kind of setting the stage here for the time periods, the requirements, and it moves on. We'll start, go to verse 10. When you enter the land I am going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. On the day you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice a burnt offering, a lamb without defect, together with its grain offering, a food offering, and its drink offering of a quarter of a hen of wine. That's maybe like a quart or a liter. Notice how specific, right? There's such detail here. He's outlining these things. There's evidence of the food and the drink offerings that they're required to keep. But then it goes on and outlines additional requirements, additional festivals. It talks about the festival of trumpets, the day of atonement, the festival of tabernacles. And I want to highlight one more piece. In verse 39, it says, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest. The eighth day also is a day of Sabbath rest. So we've got instructions here on keeping multiple Sabbaths, right? Day one is a Sabbath, day eight is a Sabbath, and on and on. So a very strong, a very devout, a very compliant Jew would have continued to uphold all of these requirements. They would keep these festivals, they would give these offerings, they would make these sacrifices, they would do everything that the law required of them because they thought it was necessary. But Jesus paid the price, right? He fulfilled the law, and Paul writes to them with a very targeted response. He's saying it's not about following all of these rules. It's not about keeping all of these commands. It's about following the ruler and keeping our eyes fixed on the king. The Colossian believers were dealing with these false teachings that were insisting that the claims of the Jewish ceremonial system were still binding. When in reality, Paul says, they were merely a shadow of a far greater reality that had finally arrived. So we know this. We know that a shadow has no substance, right? It is cast by something that is more substantial. Sometimes when my wife and I are out walking with our boys, we will... Um, play along with this little game where they like to step on our shadow, right? So they'll chase us around and they're like giggling and laughing. I stepped on your shadow. And it's so cute. I would do it every day just to hear their little squeals of delight, right? But to us, to me, it makes no difference if they're stepping on my shadow because it has zero impact, right? They could step on it. They could jump on it, kick it, punch it, pour stuff on it. And it wouldn't impact me in any way, right? Because the shadow has no substance, These ceremonies were shadows that were cast by heavenly realities. Christ's life, Christ's ministry, Christ's sacrifice, Christ's kingdom, 
These are the realities. They are the substance. So in essence, Paul is saying, you know those things that you were bound to, that you were required to do, they're no longer necessary because Christ made a way, because he paid the price, he fulfilled the law and the requirements once and for all so that we are no longer bound to them. He continues in verse 18. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with its joints and its ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. So here, Paul begins to address this second realm of false teaching, this teaching that stems from Gnosticism. And now, just a reminder, Gnosticism was this fairly prominent heretical Christian movement that took place in the early Christian church, right? It taught that everything that is physical, that all matter is evil, but that people could attain a higher spiritual understanding by their own efforts, so Gnostics had this really strange view uh, about Jesus that he was lesser, less powerful, and they had a really strong view and belief that others, uh, about other spiritual beings like angels, right? So Paul is addressing these things directly. The Gnostic philosophy was very works-based. It was gaining influence in the Colossian church. And what I find really interesting is that it kind of parallels with like legalism, right? It's, it was based and characterized on strict legalism, neglect of the body, angel worship, and false humility. So Paul is like hitting all these things. He's addressing them head on, right? He's not um, pulling any punches. He just gets after it. And what he does is he brings it back around to this strong Christology, right? He says, Christ is the head of the body. He holds the body, the church, together. And it is through him that the body is sustained. Verse 20, it goes on, it says, you have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world such as don't handle, don't touch, don't taste? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. So Paul is placing the things of this world in contrast with the things of heaven. The world, as he's referring to here, is talking about the age in which you live and all of the desires, all the passions, all the drives that go along with it. So a person then who is alive to the world, who lives in worldly ways, by worldly philosophies, he's saying is dead to the things of God. And the opposite is equally true. The person who has then died with Christ now lives by the principles of the kingdom of heaven and has turned their backs on the things of this world. So why do you keep following the rules of this world, he says, or more literally, why do you continue to submit yourselves to these decrees? It's believed that he's alluding here to the obsolete ordinances of Judaism that we already talked about, but it's also believed that these words are dual meaning or dual purposed. The Jews absolutely had certain rules and regulations about handling food, about, you know, those different ceremonies, things that they could and couldn't eat. But additionally, the Gnostics 
had these ascetic practices. They had these things about discipline and abstinence. And Paul is talking about these things here as well. So verse 23, he continues, he says, these rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. So there was a form or an appearance of wisdom that went along with these practices. But in truth, they were empty. Paul is therefore warning against being deceived or misled by these appearances. These practices, they may have seemed good because of their piety, how pious they were, but they were very self-focused. They were self-driven and they led the believers into this realm of will worship or what Pastor Tim talked about, meology, right? It had them thinking they had to rely on their own efforts in order to gain favor with God. So what does Paul do? He does what he's been doing. He invites them to see this bigger and bolder picture. He invites them to grasp this image of the Savior. He lifts him up and he lets them be drawn into him. Chapter three, verse one. It says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. I love it in, in the Greek, this word for set, it talks about a habitual practice. This is not just a one time, like set it and forget it. This is a continual practice. This is a habitual setting of your sights on the kingdom of heaven. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Both of these, I feel like, are very basic and simple truths, but they have this incredible power and application for our lives today. Set your eyes on heaven. Think about the things of heaven. Seek first heaven, and all of these other things will be in place. All these things will be added unto you. If you struggle with sin, if you are battling issues in your life that you just can't seem to get over or get beyond, or it's, it's blocking your focus, your vision on Christ, I encourage you to put these things into practice. Set your eyes, set your mind, set your heart on the things above. And the things of this world, as that song goes, will grow strangely dim. If you haven't caught it from this letter yet, it is only in Christ that we find victory. Because it is in Christ that all power, all authority, all strength lies. When Christ is not central, when Christ is not supreme in our lives, everything else is askew. Everything else is off track or out of orbit because he is the one who holds it all together. Our duty, our task as children of God is to seek him first, is to be in relationship with him, is to desire him more. And as we do that, we fall deeper in love. We begin to adore him. We begin to proclaim him. And as we do this, we manifest him in all areas of our lives. 
for you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Your real life, our real lives are hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Wow, what a beautiful and glorious day that will be. May we all live with anticipation and expectation of seeing that glory. Let us pray. Glorious God, we thank you for giving us this opportunity to set our sights on the things above. Thank you for this reminder that it is in you that we live, that we move, that we have our being. You hold the universe together. You hold us together. You pick up all our pieces, Lord. You put us back together. We are so thankful, God. Help us in our daily lives to fix our eyes on you, to set our minds, to set our hearts on you, on your kingdom, on your glory. And as we do that, may all the different stresses, all the different pieces, the struggles, the worries, the fears, the sins, may all of those things fall to the wayside as we pursue you. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.